You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. I'm Dana Rygrodsky, and uh, granted this is a global, not Monday, it's a global lecture on a Friday, um, but I'm particularly thankful for uh, Professor Lyons and Professor Rick Lorenz um, from the Jackson School and to the Ellison Center of Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the Jackson School of International Studies for, um, for making this happen, for being able to invite our speaker and, and, again, continuing the partnership that we have through the Global Lecture Series, not only through the Global Lecture Series, uh, but this has been one of our um, most fruitful collaborations to make sure that we can bring interesting speakers and uh, highlight um, current topics or very interesting comparative transnational and international topics. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Professor Lorenz, who many of you probably know because he also teaches here, uh, to introduce our speaker. Professor Lorenz. Well, thank you, and I'm pleased to be here to introduce Dr. Golubuk. I met Sergei when I was on a State, de- State Department-sponsored trip to Russia in 2001. I was, the, I was the advisor to their Jessup International Moot Court team, and he was a brilliant uh, leader of that, of that team that competed in Washington, D.C. Uh, since that time, he's been a great supporter to my, uh, my international justice-related programs. I think he's visited us in The Hague or in Rome on about seven or eight occasions over the years, and I think uh, he's, he's fascinating uh, things that he's doing now and representing clients in Russia, uh, f- former staff of the European Court of Human Rights, and uh, he's, apparently he has a radio show in St. Petersburg now, which he gives current updates on, uh, on the things that are available. So I welcome uh, Dr. Sergei Godelbuk. Thank you, Rick, and uh, thank you, Ellison Center, for having me here. Uh, in fact, earlier today, uh, I received a prize awarded by the Moscow Helsinki Group, and there was an award ceremony in Moscow for defending human rights in courts, but the ceremony was without me. <laughs> because uh, because I, uh, I already was scheduled to go here and I uh, preferred to go to, to Seattle instead of Moscow. <laughs> because being a resident of St. Petersburg and proud resident of St. Petersburg, I try to go to Moscow only when it's extremely necessary. <laughs> and I, I, I decided that uh, receiving a prize is not extreme necessity. I'd better fly to West Coast. Um, anyway, since uh, since uh, it is uh, this uh, this uh, spe- this uh, uh, talk is is uh, is, is uh, recorded, I would like to acknowledge my gratitude to the Moscow Helsinki Group uh, for, for um, awarding me the prize on on human rights protection in courts, and that included Russian courts, Russian Constitutional Court, and the European Court of Human Rights. Although, of course, work of lawyer in a situation and environment like as Russian is very different different from uh, uh, lawyering in countries like France or United Kingdom. I would say it's much more interesting than in the countries like United Kingdom and France. Uh, I would like to share some of my thoughts on uh, perspective of human rights defense in Russia. Uh, so those also will be like general hypotheses or general ideas I would like to share with you. Uh, using some of the recent cases to illustrate this, those hypotheses or ideas, and then I will be glad to uh, res- reply to your questions. Uh, of course, uh, those thoughts reflect my personal opinions and should not be understood as uh, opinions of my clients or of anyone else apart from me. I think this this uh, talk this uh, talk is uh, very topical, and the study of Russia is very important right now, for for various reasons. First of all, and it's not only in the United States, but particularly in the United States, Russia is portrayed as a as an evil doer. If something terrible happens, that is because of Russia. If a presidential candidate loses election, Russia is to blame. Uh, if presidential uh, candidate wins the election, then again Russia is to blame. Uh, it's uh, both uh, in America and in Europe. 
military uh, issues or armed conflicts in various parts of the world uh, are very often blamed on Russia. Not entirely without grounds, but uh, generally Russia is an easy object to blame. Um, it's not so straightforward. It's not so easy, and it's not always the case. Um, however, in order to find out uh, the sources of many of those problems, it's important to know more about Russia. And the second idea or second reason for studying Russia uh, is that we don't know a lot about what's going on in the country, particularly because many Western academics use the uh, worldviews which were developed in very different era, which were developed in uh, immediate aftermath of the Cold War when Russia was perceived as post-Soviet country where liberals who are European-oriented are fighting the old bureaucracy in order to liberalize the country and drive market economy and accomplish economic reforms. That was uh, the view of the 90s, and I don't think it's relevant today. Uh, contemporary view is much more complicated, is much more diverse, and relatively unknown to the West, or to the East for that point. Uh, looking at, for example, countries such as Japan or South Korea, where uh, Russian studies are also important. Uh, I will uh, share several, uh, several thoughts that I find important. And I will start with uh, the following. Uh, contemporary Russian Federation uh, is incredibly regionally diverse. In terms of human rights reality on the ground, you uh, come across very different situation in the North Caucasus in comparison with uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, in comparison with Far East or Kaliningrad region. Let me give you one example. Uh, there is ongoing story uh, about assassinations of gay men in Chechnya. And uh, recently, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel raised that issue in uh, her conversations with President Putin. And uh, meetings of Chancellor Merkel and Putin are important to follow because she's probably the only international leader that shares two common languages with President Putin, uh, Russian and German. Uh, Chancellor Merkel uh, speaks uh, fluent Russian, being a native of East Germany, and uh, President Putin speaks German, being a former spy in East Germany. So they share two common languages, and it's pretty well known that very often she talks to President Putin as emissary of all Western leaders. That was her role in the Minsk process concerning East Ukraine and many other processes. So she raised that issue. And uh, the story is ongoing, and I'm sure there will be more revelations about the plight of gay men in Chechnya. However, I think it's uh, telling to uh, bring just uh, one example. The press secretary uh, of Chechen President Ramzan Kadyrov replied to allegations, saying that they are untruthful because, of course, there are no gay men in Chechnya. Uh, so this is very telling in... Uh, explaining how LGBT rights are perceived in, in North Caucasus. However, one of the uh, civil society leaders who is uh, leading LGBT network and who is now talking on uh, persecution of gay men in Chechnya is Igor Kachetkov, who is based in St. Petersburg, who is leading an NGO dedicated to LGBT rights in St. Petersburg, uh, and uh, who does it publicly, being an open gay himself. Um, there is an annual uh, uh, art festival called Queer Festival in St. Petersburg, and it's or organized every autumn. International dignitaries attend, including Boris Dietrich, uh, head of uh, advocacy on LGBT rights from Human Rights Watch, a former Dutch parliamentarian who introduced the uh, law on same-sex marriage in the Netherlands. He attended uh, St. Petersburg for Queer Festival and spoke freely on fight for LGBT rights worldwide. Yes, uh, throughout a number of years, uh, the queer festival was attacked by homophobic uh, militants associated with the contemporary member of the parliament, uh, Vitaly Milonov. However, those attacks 
just raised the profile of Queer Festival. Uh, last year, Queer Festival proudly was organized without any disruptions. So you have the same country where in one region the officials negate the existence of LGBT and the same country where in another region, in St. Petersburg, you have uh, openly acting L uh, NGOs advocating LGBT rights and even organizing international festivals, uh, su successfully organizing them. Uh, this is uh, the example of diversity in terms of regions, and I'm afraid much of the research into Russia was focused on St. Petersburg and Moscow, being more easily accessible than the rest of the country. Far East, uh, which is closer to Seattle, uh, is almost, uh, is almost uh, not known to the international audience what's going, for example, with LGBT rights in the Far East. I don't know. And I'm afraid no one actually knows what's going on the ground in those regions. So the regional diversity is one of the points that I would like to make. The second point that I would like to make is the importance of Soviet legacy. Uh, that's true that in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, or even several years before the collapse of the Soviet Union, during the perestroika times, ideological mantle or ideological umbrella of the Soviet regime, the communism, was dismantled and delegitimized. And the ideology of the Soviet Union is not there anymore. However, the institutional hierarchy, the structures, the uh, types of governing, are uh, very often Soviet. I would like to uh, focus on, on uh, rule of law and on uh, legal structures. In the 90s, when the window of opportunity came, the uh, reforms were focused on building market economy, on uh, monetary reforms, on building institutions like the central bank, on building uh, most important elements of market economy. Other sectors of reforms were almost neglected. Insofar as a court system is concerned, uh, my point is that uh, only facade improvements took place. For example, the Constitutional Court was established as a new court being able to verify whether legislation is in conformity with the Constitution or not. However, the criminal procedure, the civil proceedings, are following the same rules and almost the same hierarchical structure as were in, 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 uh, as were in, uh, in the Soviet Union. One of the interesting examples is that almost every city in Russia has a district court called Leninsky District Court, so named after Lenin, because they didn't bother even to rename the courts. Even names of the courts remain the same. And I uh, refer to the district courts, to the regional courts, to the ordinary courts trying criminal cases, adjudicating civil disputes. And uh, the, the modus operandi of those, uh, of those courts did not change. And most importantly, the self-perception of judges and the self-perception of judicial officers who uh, perceive themselves as legal advisors to the state more than, international, uh, more than uh, independent adjudicators. So they feel themselves as uh, being part of the state machinery. Uh, one of the recent examples was the recorded conversation. It was published on the website of the presidency of Kremlin, recorded conversation between President Putin and Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court, President of the Constitutional Court. In Russia, we have a separate Supreme Court and Constitutional Court. Uh, very famous uh, judge, proper legal scholar, Valery Zorkin, who uh, was received by, uh, by President Putin and who was uh, congratulated by President Putin, uh, who said that in terms of uh, discussions about draft legislation, sometimes that was, that's something that was uh, President Putin saying, I call Chief Justice Zorkin and ask for his advice. And then this advice uh, is something that I use in my decisions. Although the legislation that is adopted and signed into law by the president is then subject to constitutional review before the constitutional court presided over by the same chief justice. And that was proudly published by the website of Kremlin, signifying the importance of the constitutional court. Uh, and I think everyone was proud to, to, to say, look, he cares about judges. He even consult them from the time to time on what to do. 
the concept of judges being independent uh, adjudicators, being able to independently decide in disputes, particularly in disputes between the government and citizens, is uh, not something that was developed in uh, in the 90s and 2000. Uh, for example, in cases coming from uh, peaceful protests, uh, and now there is a new wave of peaceful protests on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg, judges will always trust police officers in their testimony and will never trust uh, peaceful protesters because police officers are agents of the state and you always trust the state, being part of the state yourself. Um, the, 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 the attempts were made to change that. For example, it was pretty obvious that this system is not working well when you deal with uh, commercial law transactions, when state is uh, participating in, uh, in, 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 in market economy. And of course, state is one of the biggest uh, owner, it's uh, one of the biggest stakeholder of oil and gas companies and so on and so on. And the attempt was made from the beginning of the 90s to build a separate system of adjudication of disputes in the commercial field, in the commercial sphere. And the separate system of commercial courts was built uh, with the higher commercial court, or which arbitrage would be in the apex court in the system of commercial courts. And they were developing very different jurisprudence. However, in 2014, through the changes into the constitution, the higher commercial court was abolished. And it is pretty well known that one of the reasons for the abolition of the higher commercial court was the perceived over independence of the high commercial court. And there's an immediate penalty for, for, the, uh, for being consistent in its case law, for being consistent in upholding the uh, adversary proceedings. The high commercial court was uh, abolished, and that was very uh, straightforward lesson for all, for, for all other courts how they should behave when the state is party to the dispute, be, be it criminal case or commercial dispute. Uh, so this is, this is a very important element of, of the system, the courts being remnants of the Soviet legacy, perceiving themselves as part of the state machinery, not as an independent uh, decision maker. Um, it was very different in uh, transition years in some other post-Soviet states. And the example that I would like to, uh, to, to use is the example of the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, where in the beginning of the 1990s, uh, the Soviet court system was uh, abolished altogether, and the new court system was built. In Estonia, for example, they realized they need to hire new judges to the Supreme Court, and the only proper lawyers who qualify would be lawyers from the uh, uh, law professors from the law school, and there is the only uh, law school in Estonia based in Tartu, and the seat of the Supreme Court is in Tallinn, in the capital of Estonia. And the law professor said, no, they won't move to the capital. That's why they moved to the Supreme Court, <laughs> to the city where they can hire new lawyers to become judges of the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it was the case also in some countries of Eastern Europe where they built judicial system from the scratch. In, so, in Russia, the assumption was made that market economy and economic reforms would lead to the changes in the legal environment and would lead somehow to the changes in rule of law. It did not happen, uh, mo uh, mostly because of uh, rigid Soviet-styled uh, court system that was used by the government in a number of uh, prosecution of political opponents and, and tycoons. For example, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and this is pretty, uh, pretty well-known case. Um, the, uh, and that, that's why I think it's very important in all situations of transition to look at the institutional legacy and to look at whether in spite of transition at the level of political declarations, institutions have been reformed or not. I think it's very important right now to look at the uh, example of Burma and to see whether the meaningful legal reforms are happening in terms of institutions uh, and, and, and uh, to look at other countries where the transition is ongoing, to look not only at economic reforms but also at the reforms in, in, in legal field, in, particularly in how courts function, in how judges are recruited and promoted and in how judges perceive themselves. The, 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 the third uh, uh, hypothesis that I would like to, 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 to raise or the third uh, thought that I would like to share with you is uh, context of Russia being 
successor of the Soviet Union and being through that part of the empire in decline. So you, you have, you have the, uh, the, the, the remnant of the big Soviet empire, however, retaining certain characteristics of the empire itself. Uh, the Russian Federation is composed of different entities, and some of those entities uh, are very uh, similar to the former Soviet republics within, U within the USSR. So the, 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 the territory is not homogeneous. You have so-called republics within the Russian Federation with uh, their own national languages, with very often their own national elites, with uh, businesses that might be uh, oriented towards particular international partners because of historical links, like elite of Tatarstan being closely linked with Turkey, or people in uh, republics, so-called ethnic republics in the North Caucasus being oriented towards the Gulf because of uh, Muslim faith that they share. They have to be within the Russian Federation for the, for the variety of reasons. However, they uh, develop their own identities and in case of uh, uh, in, in, in case of existential decision to make, it's not pretty clear what type of loyalty they will uh, express. Um, and, and, and this is very important because one of the problems in every uh, empire in decline is that there are very few unifying ideas to keep the country together. I think the, the, the best uh, example of how it was tackled was the collapse of the British Empire when it was possible for the British Empire to retain identity, having lost most of its possessions, including India and Pakistan and so on. However, it was, of course, very, very painful for the British Empire as well. For, but it was very important for the British Empire because there was the realization on the part of the British elite that the empire is lost. They did not pretend that they would be able to keep India or Pakistan or Africa or they, they, they came to terms of the collapse of the British Empire and they had to build a new identity after the collapse, post-imperial identity. It's not the case for Russia, where the elite tries to stick to this former Soviet identity. And one of the elements of this uh, empire uh, or the, the pretension of continuation of the empire is the signification of the victory in the Second World War. As you know, in, in Russia, the Second World War is portrayed as a, or named as Great Patriotic War. And uh, the point is that Soviet Union won this, uh, the Great Patriotic War against all odds, against uh, the United States secretly trying to uh, make peace with Hitler behind the backs of uh, Soviet leadership. Uh, and, of course, it was ultimate sacrifice of Soviet people and that's not without uh, factual uh, grounds, and that's, of course, the case. But it's only because of the sacrifice of Soviet people that Great Patriotic War was won. And no one should be allowed to negate and to deny or even to uh, disagree with this statement. It's now the provision in the criminal code criminalizing negation of the results of the Great Patriotic War, whatever that means. And there is, al there is already one conviction under this article. It's interestingly, it is the person in, uh, in layman who posted something uh, in the social network saying that Soviet Union uh, occupied Poland in 1939. And that was perceived as negation of the results of the Great Patriotic War, although that was factual statement about the events preceding the Great Patriotic War, and this statement is factually correct. Because, of course, in September 1939, Soviet Union shamefully uh, joined forces with Nazi Germany in occupying Poland. Uh, however, as it was the case with Stalin, the current Russian leadership tries to f forget about this uh, 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 episode of the of the Second World War because, of course, otherwise it would mean that uh, Russia is becoming an ally of Nazi Germany. So uh, the one of the elements 
of being able to uh, accept uh, or to, to being able to uh, overcome these uh, psychological consequences of the collapse of empire is coming to terms with the collapse of empire. It's not happening in Russia, at least uh, at the level of the Russian government. And even more, the, fo- the, fo- the, uh, the former or the old stereotypes and the old points are exploited again and again, uh, like the results of the Second World War. And if, even more important, there is now ongoing idea about collecting remnants of the Soviet Union and bringing them back into the, into the Russian Federation. Uh, annexation of Crimea is an important example, um, although, of course, historical roots of Crimea being part of Russia predate the Soviet Union. And uh, as it is well known, Crimea was first um, uh, annexed by, by the Russian Empire in the 18th century, when it was taken from, uh, from Ottoman Empire. Uh, apart from Crimea, there are a number of uh, frozen conflicts in a number of uh, f- post-Soviet states where Russia is playing an important role to claim that it is collecting territories of the former Soviet Union um, uh, re- uh, where uh, Russian-speaking minorities reside. It's eastern Ukraine, it's certain regions of Georgia, it's Transnistrian region of Moldova, and uh, this list can grow, and uh, it might include, for example, northern parts of Kazakhstan or some parts of uh, Baltic states or, or, or of Belarus. This is very dangerous for uh, neighbors of Russia. That's why most of the neighbors of Russia, including technically allies, are hesitant to, for example, join uh, uh, celebrations of the victory in the Great Patriotic War in Moscow. Uh, the only foreign leader who attended the last celebration was the president of Moldova, uh, very controversially for Moldovan domestic politics. Even president of Belarus is hesitant to join Putin in those celebrations because he's afraid that this uh, post, uh, post-Soviet uh, uh, identity can lead to the uh, annexation of Belarus into Russia. Uh, I don't want to go into the international dimension of that, but what I would like to say that it's very uh, detrimental to the domestic dynamics inside Russia because it gives uh, a lot of uh, fuel to xenophobic, uh, isolationist uh, rhetorics inside the country. And uh, this uh, allows certain parts of the uh, pro-governmental uh, publicists to portray Russia. And this is very uh, famous. Uh, it has happened before. Uh, it's very counterproductive, but it's easy to sell uh, idea of Russia as being besieged fortress, as Russia being surrounded by enemies from the east, from the west, from south, as uh, only Russian army and navy being the only allies of Russia. Uh, It is uh, very uh, dangerous for the domestic discourse. And unfortunately, it's happening now not only in Russia. It's happening also in some other countries, uh, and uh, this anti-globalization, anti-international agenda is uh, uh, very uh, attractive for for many uh, uh, Empire builders, empire builders, I would say. Another element that I would like to, uh, to, 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 to highlight is the economic decline. And uh, this is uh, the result of several factors. Uh, the most important ones being drop in oil prices, with the economy heavily dependent on income from uh, selling uh, high, 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 uh, oil and gas, first of all. Uh, and sanctions imposed on Russia by uh, the United States, European Union, and some other jurisdictions following the annexation of Crimea. And not only those factors, but also lack of systemic reforms in the country when uh, it was awashed with money. In the 90s, and especially in the first decade of the 21st century, when 
oil prices were very different and oil was uh, more than twice more expensive than now, than now money which uh, was generated by selling oil and gas was not used to uh, change the systems inside the country to build the in- infrastructure. Most of it was uh, uh, spent uh, irregularly, I should say. And, and, and that leads to the situation when uh, uh, economic growth is not there, when the purchasing power of population is going down, and when the poverty is rising. The real uh, uh, extent of poverty in Russian regions, I think, is underreported. There are interesting, uh, interesting uh, data uh, that in 20% of Russian, house, in 20% of Russian households, there is no cold water. So people have to, uh, uh, to so there is no uh, water system inside the flats or, or, or houses because uh, simply p- p- pipes, uh, pipelines are not built. Uh, even sanitation is lacking in 15% of Russian households. So the poverty is, is at the level when it's very hard to say that you have a modernized country. Of course, the military parades on the Victory Day are, uh, are on the television, but uh, real-life conditions of uh, most of the people are appalling uh, and uh, are more uh, uh, akin to the third-world countries. Apart from poverty, and this is a usual, uh, uh, usual pair of poverty, is rising inequality. And it's pretty well known that uh, Russian billionaires and oligarchs are one of the most, uh, are one of the richest people on earth, including many Russian uh, oligarchs who are now resident of London and Geneva. However, uh, the the difference between those who earn most and uh, between between one percent on the top and 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 uh, poor people is is, ri- is rising. And it's very hard to say how systemic changes in the economy would lead to this uh, inequality uh, slowing down. So the poverty and inequality are rising, and this is very important. Uh, then I would like to go uh, to, to other concept, uh, which is uh, very um, uh, topical right now, and I think it's, uh, it, it's one of the contributions from Russia to the global agenda and its so-called traditional values. Um, for, for, the, for, the, for the recent five years, it's uh, the common, uh, common uh, phrase of, uh, United, of, of, of Russian diplomats at the United Nations uh, fora, for example, at the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. When Russia is coming forward uh, with a certain draft resolution, it will almost always include reference to traditional, to traditional values. So the idea is that there are certain culturally determined traditional values coming back to the Middle Ages, presumably, that prevent uh, modernization, that prevent, for example, exception of LGBT rights, that prevent uh, embrace of modern technology and modern lifestyle. Uh, And those traditional values uh, are... uh, some classical examples of uh, normal lifestyle that should be preserved. No one actually knows what traditional values mean. And in practice, it's kind of catchword that will always be used when government wants uh, some innovations from uh, being implanted into, into, into the uh, normal lifestyle to control the status quo. Uh, the, the Bitcoin is uh, now illegal in, 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 in Russia and a blockchain technology uh, with reference to traditional values. A uh, very recent case of uh, uh, video blogger Ruslan Sokolovsky being convicted uh, in Yekaterinburg of playing Pokemon Go in the church is, is an interesting example. Uh, so uh, he uh, was found guilty of uh, upsetting the uh, religious feelings of uh, Christian of Orthodox Christians for playing uh, Pokemon Go on his iPhone in the church. 
And uh, the uh, judgment which was read uh, by the district court in Yekaterinburg several days ago is full of uh, references to the Bible, is full of references to the Holy Scriptures, and somehow the district court judge makes the conclusion that playing Pokemon Go is uh, contradicting traditional values coming from the Bible. Uh, this is pretty irrational, and it's how it is supposed to be. So the lack of rationality in this reasoning is part of its design. Uh, the whole idea is to uh, prevent uncontrolled new ideas from entering the society by reference to something that is in the blood of Russian population or to the, in the traditional values. Interesting part of the traditional values concept is that uh, it's totally hypocrite. Uh, because, um, and this is pretty hard to explain, but I'll try my best on that. Uh, the, the traditional values are mostly anti-Western. Uh, the, the, the Russian traditional values are normally explained through the reference of negation of Western-style education or of Western-style family relations, of LGBT rights, or of... Uh, um, even fashion sometimes. So the traditional values in this Russian design are very much akin to uh, Saudi Arabic traditional values of not uh, allowing women driving the cars. However, those who uh, propagate traditional values, uh, when they uh, have enough money, they will be hiring to, to buy uh, real estate in London or in Florida. They would not invest uh, money into... Uh, building traditional monasteries somewhere in the Midrasha. The, the, whole, the whole idea of traditional values is to try to uh, unite the population behind the leadership and uh, preventing them from looking abroad for sources of inspiration in terms of political and social reforms that are badly needed inside the country. Uh, and this is very closely linked to this concept of uh, country being a besieged fortress. And then those who do not uh, share the traditional values are very often referred to as traitors or as foreign agents, and that is part of uh, contemporary legislation on NGOs in Russia when NGOs are receiving foreign funding and uh, uh, try to say something publicly, they're immediately designated foreign agents with reference to the American Foreign Agents Registration Act. Uh, so interestingly, the defense of traditional values is Russia is supported by the reference to the foreign legislation that Russian government claims they are adopting in Russia. Although it's, the, the claim is uh, factually untruthful, uh, anyway, the hypocrisy of this claim is very clear in trying to protect traditional values by foreign means. Um, I think uh, the, um, the um, uh, one of, one of uh, uh, American writers who, who did a lot to explain this type of thinking is uh, Masha Gessen, uh, who's inventor of the term Trump-Putin, uh, comparing uh, Trump with Putin. And, and, uh, and there are, uh, of course, a lot of similarities between rhetorics of, uh, for example, Marine Le Pen in France and Putin on this. Uh, the whole idea of the traditional values is trying to control the information and trying to control the input coming inside the country from abroad uh, with, the, uh, with the objective of manipulating domestic agenda in order then to trade with abroad on governmental terms. Um, I would like to... Uh, to, 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 to uh, uh, say a few words about the role of international law and the role of international institutions. Uh, part of the 90s, part of the reforms of 90s was the acceptance of international law and international institutions by the Russian Federation. Uh, there is the provision in the 1993 constitution that international law forms integral part of Russian legal system. 
And one of facade developments that happened in the 90s was ratification of the European Convention on Human Rights by the Russian Federation in 1998. And that change uh, led to the acceptance of jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, which is entitled to adjudicate disputes between individuals who allege that their human rights had been violated uh, having exhausted domestic remedies, and the respondent state, the Russian Federation, who is then defendant in those international proceedings. This system is uh, very similar to the system established by the American Convention on Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which is a sister court to the European Court of Human Rights. So the idea is that you have international court that can adjudicate on allegations of human rights violations and that can declare whether the Human Rights Convention was violated or not, and then it's up to the domestic authorities to implement the judgment through the adoption of so-called general measures uh, to prevent the similar violations from happening again, and through the adoption of individual measures, for example, uh, uh, bringing criminal proceedings against those involved if it's necessary. So the, the uh, execution or enforcement of the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights depends on the goodwill of the uh, domestic authorities. And that's unfortunately or fortunately the current state of international law when international law does not uh, have a mechanism to uh, ensure implementation of the decisions of international courts. For example, for the International Court of Justice that, unlike the European Court of Human Rights, hears interstate disputes, uh, it's up to the Security Council to uh, ensure the uh, execution of the judgments of the International Court of Justice. However, in practice, the Security Council has never used this competence. And in practice, it's almost always the matter of political international consensus that those judgments will be enforced, and it's not the case that they're always enforced. It's a well-known uh, situation in when the case of uh, Lagrande uh, and Avena, the cases concerning the negation of rights to consular assistance to Mexican and German nationals in the United States, uh, when those judgments were not enforced by authorities of some of the states in the United States and the uh, criminal, criminal cases were not retried following the judgments of the International Court of Justice and the International Court of Justice and the Security Council of the United Nations did nothing. The reality is that there are no mechanisms in international law, in particular within the Council of Europe, the body that um, established the European Court of Human Rights to ensure compliance with the judgments of those international courts. The whole idea is that these regimes are based on the good faith of participating states. European Court of Human Rights, being an expert in international human rights standards, establishes whether the domestic practices were in compliance or not in compliance with international human rights standards, and then it's up to the domestic authorities to change the practices. And uh, it became pretty clear uh, in the meet, uh, in the in the in the in the in the. In the uh, around, the, around the middle of the first decade of the 21st century that Russian Federation is not willing and able to comply with those judgments in terms of general measures aimed at a change in the situation on the ground following the pronouncements of the European Court of Human Rights. Yes, technically, Russia accepts those judgments. It does not challenge the... Uh, credibility or legitimacy of those judgments. However, it does very uh, little to uh, change the situation on the ground. Uh, the example of so-called uh, Chechen judgments are telling, uh, is telling, and those are judgments concerning enforced disappearances, killings and torture of civilians uh, in the uh, so-called Second Chechen War uh, between 1999 and 2001 in, in Chechen Republic, where in more than 300 judgments, the European Court of Human Rights found violations of various uh, central human rights like right to life, prohibition of torture, and right to liberty and personal security. And uh, those judgments uh, entered into force. However, it led to zero prosecutions uh, against uh, servicemen in Chechnya. It led to uh, zero changes of modus operandi of Russian military and armed forces, and uh, the uh, abductions and disappearances continue, although they are now mostly committed not by the Russian army but by the local uh, authorities under the under the leadership of current uh, government. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I think I think um, I'll, I'll 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 use uh, around ten minutes to continue with that, and then we'll go to 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 the questions. No, yeah, I think it's five. five. We have total. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm sorry. 20 after we should start. We should start packing out of here because one thirty something else. All right. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, two minutes. So the point. The point. The point. The point is that the European Court of Human Rights is based on good faith cooperation uh, of of the member states. If it's not there, it has nothing to offer, and uh, I'm afraid we are at this stage. Um, Uh, one uh, positive note in the end. Uh, I think it's uh, what, it, what it leads us to is necessity of re rigorous uh, and, and uh, facts-based research in order to find out what's, what's going on on the ground uh, with the understanding that uh, the situation is fluid, the situation will be developing, and the situation will uh, definitely lead to the changes in the future. Uh, without necessarily relying on uh, old mindsets and on old, uh, on old uh, viewpoint, uh, view, uh, uh, worldviews. Uh, I think uh, we are at the stage when uh, the uh, uh, traditional values doctrine, the uh, reliance on Soviet uh, legacy will not be working anymore. And it's the question, the big question, what will uh, replace those doctrines in the future? In order to try to, um, to, try to um, create models or theoretical assumptions of what will replace these outdated Soviet ideas, we need to know what's going on on the ground. And that depends on the research, and that depends on uh, sociological, uh, political science, legal research. Uh, that is, as of now, uh, mostly lacking uh, internationally. So uh, thank you for, for uh, uh, listening to me, and I'm happy to, to, to spend around 10 minutes uh, to, to, to reply to the questions if there are. Thank you very much. Thank you. for very nuanced uh, and contextualized comments. I'm particularly curious as someone who is advocating in the courts, right, putting those um, difficult, some, not sometimes, often controversial cases. With the recognition that you have this legacy of judges that view themselves as part of the state machinery, what are the strategies that you employ or that you find work to actually move those cases forward to, to get victories for your clients, mm -hmm. um, aside from the personal risk mm -hmm. issues, which I'm sure you asked yeah. me about. Thank you. And that, that is exactly the question I, I, I needed, I needed to, uh, to, 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 to dwell upon in, 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 in my uh, presentation. And thanks for, for drawing my attention to that. Uh, I think the, the, the best uh, strategy, and it's not only the case for Russia, but in, for many other countries in this situation, is to justify human rights not only from the moral perspective but also from the cost and benefits analysis connecting linking human rights with economic growth connecting uh, justice mechanisms with better well-being for for the public including for the government and that's something that is slightly counterintuitive but that's something that I find is working better than anything else. Uh, does everyone want to live better? Yes. That's why we need to protect property rights. Um, does everyone want to have better informed decisions? Yes. That's why we need freedom of expression. To look at basic human rights, not just as moral imperatives, but also as means to attain economic objectives or uh, lifestyle objectives even, to make human rights fashionable and to make human rights uh, closer to home in a sense. And sometimes that means avoiding the term human rights because unfortunately it's too politicized and too contaminated by politicians because very often like human rights defenders in Russia are perceived as opposition uh, supporters. Although maybe they are, that does not necessarily mean they are. Um, and this is something uh, I'm sure many of colleagues and definitely myself try to do. 
For example, there was a recent case uh, before the Constitutional Court, a case of peaceful protester Ildar Dadin, who complained uh, about the, uh, the, uh, the, the law which provides for the criminal responsibility for three-plus infringements of pretty draconian law and uh, peaceful assemblies. And the argument that was made on his behalf before the Constitutional Court that was that imprisoning peaceful protesters is not just unfair, it's also costly. It's uh, uh, I I irrational use of state budget to put someone in prison and to pay for, for, for his lodging in the prison just because uh, he or she was involved in peaceful protesters, peaceful protests. That's, that's pretty pretty simple argument. However, it can be used in many other contexts that uh, human rights violations are not just unfair, they're actually also cost, uh, costing too much. They are very expensive, and they lead to economic downturn. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So, to continue, does that mean, in your opinion, that the opportunity for Russia to overcome the governmental authority is to have too much people in the streets, that they don't have enough resources I think that's what, it's go what uh, that is what uh, what is going to happen, and, and the real uh, sooner or later the real question what will come next, and that will depend on the ability to conduct institutional reforms, but the real uh, but th that that is that is uh, that is inevitable, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think I think Alexei Navalny is the opposition politician who was able to set his own agenda, and his most important achievement so far is ability to link corruption, which is widespread inside the government, and poverty of the population. That line is not so easy to explain, and I think he managed to have it explained to everyone who dares to listen. What is again the big question mark? What does he propose? So he, he, he's definitely very efficient in uh, explaining the, the problems and the corruption of the current government. But the question, and this is not very clear, what is actually he's proposing in terms of his uh, agenda for reform. And I think this is something that makes sense to do now, to think long term and to think about reforms following those crowds on the street. What will happen next? What will happen after Venezuela-like situation? And uh, so far, uh, Alexei Navalny is not able to do that, and uh, maybe he is not interested in, in this because it's too far away. However, when this window of opportunity will be open, it will be too far. It will be too late to think about it. It, it should be thought of uh, through that now. We did run out of time. Yeah. Please join me in the main thanking survey. Thank you very much.